Hi, this is Seng Yao, and a big welcome to today's podcast. Today's show is important. While much of the spotlight has been concentrated on the U.S. presidential election, much less attention has been accorded to China's internal factionalism, and more importantly, how much the world truly understands about President Xi Jinping's posturing and how local dynamics will ultimately shape U.S.-China relations. We're therefore delighted to be hosting this podcast with Dr. Tang Kong Yam, former chief economist of Singapore and World Bank's senior economist in Beijing. Dr. Tan has spent much of his career engaging China on its economic policies, so today his insights will be very timely as U.S. elections enter the penultimate round. My colleague and Maybank Kimeng's senior economist, Chua Bin, will be moderating the session. So let's uh, cut over to the call right now. Hi, thanks, Sing Yao. Um, you know, I think we're very privileged to have Kong Yam. Perhaps with a quote from uh, Lee Kuan Yew. You know, I think um, when we flash back, and this is a quote from uh, Graham Allison in 2013, and um, uh, he's, a, he's a professor at Harvard Kennedy School, is famed for his uh, thesis on the suicide trap. And in 2013, in the year in which C was elected, uh, I guess he asked uh, you know, our minister mentor, Lee Kuan Yew, what did he think of uh, Xi Jinping? Does he have what it takes to lead? Um, Lee Kuan Yew replied, he has iron in his soul. I would put him in Nelson Mandela's class of persons, a person with enormous emotional stability who does not allow his personal misfortunes or sufferings to affect his judgment. In a word, he is impressive. With that, I think I'll open up for Kong Yam. You know, with this quote, Lee Kuan Yew named him the man with the iron soul. So what are his uh, roots? What motivates him? What are his ambitions for China? Kong Yam? Thank you. This, I think this is a very good quote, and in some way, it represents the man himself. Now, in order to understand China, you cannot just be only looking at institutions. Very often, personality are important. And, and this is a case where, of course, everybody knows that Xi is a, a strong man, and he will influence China and influence the rest of the world. Now, in 1993, when... Uh, I was working for Dr. Goh Keng Sui. At that point, Dr. Goh Keng Sui was invited by Mr. Teng Xiaoping to advise China on coastal development and development strategy. So in 1993, when we were in Fuzhou, in Fujian, there's this young man coming to brief us. Mm -hmm. And his name was Xi Jinping. Uh, he was about 40 years old. The thing that impressed me most was that he was a very strong uh, nationalist very clearly from uh, even from that age. Now, to dig into the man and understand his soul uh, and explain why he's behaving in some this way and some of the repercussion from the US side, we need to know that some of you might be aware, he actually has a first wife called Kalingling. Uh, Kalingling was the daughter of Ke Hua, the, the uh, ambassador of China to UK. She actually is grown up in the West and the two of them actually didn't fit very well and they eventually divorced because she wanted to go to UK and he didn't want to go. And eventually he married this present wife, Pen Lian, who is, uh, as you're aware, patriotic song singer in People's Liberation Army. He's a very strong nationalist. He's a devout Buddhist, not well publicized, and he as a strong Confucianist culture and a sense of reclaiming the glory of Chinese history. So long before Trump made the 
MAGA, you know, make America great again, uh, a major slogan. Xi Jinping has really uh, made China great again, except that he didn't articulate in that way. Now, I would like to say something on 1996. So you might be aware that in 1996, when Xi Jinping was posted in, uh, in Fujian, uh, this Li Tenghui came up with this two-state theory and it was almost like an independent thing. So, so there was a big major who China was very angry, sent missile over. But it, Bill Clinton sent two uh, aircraft carrier and China was totally humiliated because China cannot move. So it's important to understand this because I think it affects him significantly and this explains his determination uh, to retake Taiwan in some way. One way to understand Xi Jinping is look at the Han Dynasty. The Han Dynasty's founder was Han Gaozhu Liu Bang. Uh, Liu Bang was a very forceful personality, a little bit of a partly crazy guy like Mao Zedong. But the greatest emperor during that dynasty was actually number seven, who was Han Wuti, who expanded uh, China's domain and, and effectively entrenched neo-Confucianism as an ideology and laid the foundation for the next 2,000 years of, of major history and, and see, see himself in that light. Now, to understand China today, you need to understand, firstly, the military commission. This is the most powerful commission apart from party, Central Military Commission. When President Xi came up in, in the, as a president in 2012, he was actually quite weak, no? The whole Central Military Commission for the first five years, 2012 to 2017, he wasn't in charge. Uh, you notice the uh, names in black, the four generals here are loyal to former President Jiang Zemin. The one in uh, blue, loyal to Hu Jintao. The only four red ones are loyal to him. Uh, and then this Ma Xiaotian, the Air Force General, he is a bit opportunist. Uh, so sometimes loyal to Hu Jintao, sometimes loyal to Xi Jinping. I, I color him purple. So you notice he actually was not fully in charge. Uh, but through a very skillful uh, anti-corruption campaign, he managed to remove a lot of the others. So by 2017 and 2022, after the next five years, he is now totally in charge. Now, this is a very important chart. This shows that when he first came up in 2012, he was not so strong and he was not so consolidated. But after October 2017, he is now totally in charge. Uh, and then I want to go on to the party. Uh, when he first came out in 2012, he, again, he was not in charge of the party. Uh, Yang Zemin has three person in the faction. Xi Jinping has two. Uh, Hu Jintao has one. And then Teng family has another one. Now, to understand the situation, you can see clearly that Jiang Zemin was still in control. You know? So again, with the help of Wang Qishan, he was able to remove some of these people. And so by 2017, he was now in charge. He got four person, and then the other two factions, are, uh, two is here, one is Jiang Zemin's faction. And this is the main factional division in China today. Xi Jinping's faction is what we call a nationalist faction. The factions who feel that China has arrived, 
we are now getting stronger. We are no longer being bullied and we want to assert ourselves. We are, you know, a major technology power. We are military increasingly strong and we want to make China great again. We want to reclaim our centrality in the Asia-Pacific region in China, in Asia. Hu Jintao's faction, especially Li Keqiang, uh, is the prime minister is a bit more careful. He he. This faction is what I would call a reformist liberal faction. They try to highlight, you know, which is true that China still have a lot of poor people. You know, the coastal region might be quite rich. Beijing, Shanghai might be quite strong, but a lot of central western region, you still got 600, 600 more uh, people who are very poor. A lot of them income is quite low, and, and they they are. Actually, uh, China is not, not necessarily uh, that strong. And more importantly, China's technology is still behind US, you know. So it is better not to be boastful. We, we uh, uh, should be more focused on our uh, making the country richer rather than boosting our image, boosting our prestige, going around uh, uh, a bit too uh, boastful. And so I will argue that this faction, uh, Li Keqiang's faction, see China as a glass half empty. Whereas Xi Jinping's faction feels that China has already arrived, and now if US bully us, Japan bully us, we hammer them. And this is a faction that I would say uh, nationalist hardline faction. And in their case, they said that the glass now is not half full, but three quarter full. Uh, this is the way. I would see the, the present situation in China. Yeah, if I can just interject here, since uh, you're on this slide. Uh, what happens after 2022? You know, I guess that's the year that presidency is scheduled for retirement. Um, so is there a plan to move some of the younger candidates into you know, um, higher positions and who's going to retire? A very good question. You notice in the past, out of the seven, there are always two younger persons who are about 10 years older than these people who were retired and then two younger uh, people taking over. Uh, in the past, you got Hu Jintao and Wen Jiabao uh, who are a bit younger and then they took over. And then further down in 2012, you got uh, Xi Jinping and Li Keqiang who are also younger and he, they took over. But now by 2022, after 10 years, you notice everybody here is quite old. Uh, and so there are no obvious people in the 50s who are in line. Uh, this is in some way by design. Presidencies want to stay longer. And so uh, in 2022, all these people, this is, uh, you know, some of them, a lot of them are older than him or about the same age. They will leave. And then he will be the only one staying behind. And then some of the younger one from not the top seven, but top 25, you know, People like uh, Hu Chunhua, you know, uh, Li Qiang or, or Chen Ming and all this, they will come up and then they will be part of the top seven from 2022 to 2027. But they are not as senior. Uh, so C will become the main uh, guy who is uh, the top guy and the others will be a bit more junior. So he, in some way, would not retire in 2022, which is 10 years after he come out. And it's very likely that he might stay on uh, up to 2032. Yeah. 
I guess uh, where does um, where does Vice Premier Liu He fit in all this? Of course, we hear his name a lot. He seems to be Presidency's closest economic advisor. Uh -huh. um, is he um, no? due for a bigger yeah, role very, in the future? Very, very good point. He he is close to Presidency uh, because you know they were both princeling. Presidency's father was a Vice Premier. Liu He's father was a little bit more junior, just one of the you know, uh, governors of province. But they, in when they were in uh, primary, uh, lower secondary school, they both attend the same uh, lower secondary school in Haidian, in Beijing. Uh, they stay in the uh, dormitory. Presidency, a little bit plumber, he slept on the lower bunker. Liu mm -hmm. He is a bit thinner, he slept on the upper bunker. So their relationship go all the way and presidency trusted him. And that's why uh, he's the key guy in charge of the economy, even overshadowing Li uh, Keqiang. But Liu He is older than Xi Jinping. So he will have to retire uh, in 2022. Uh, he will not be able to, to move up. Yeah. So I guess with these factions, you know, um, the US trade war, the tech war, has it strengthened or weakened um, Xi's faction or Li's Keqiang's um, uh, faction? Yeah, good, good question. Huh? The trade war has become more significant. Uh, the first thing I want to highlight is this. Huh? You know, when the COVID situation came out early this year, Xi was on the defensive, you know, because he messed things up. But as the uh, China's management of the COVID become better, uh, he actually strengthened himself, and that's partly due to, uh, thanks to Trump, because Trump didn't handle it very well. And I monitor it very closely, and if you look around April this year, when the situation in China stabilized, he actually took advantage of it and removed some of the Jiang Zemin's faction people in the uh, public security and replace it with his own people. So, so it's an indication that he was on the defensive from January to April this year. At one point, he disappeared for two, two weeks, you know? uh, and then the newspaper didn't mention about him. But from April onward, and then especially in the last few months, uh, all the indication that he is stronger, and also more importantly, the domestic media uh, in China, uh, has highlighted the fact that China has done well, the economy has bounced back very well, and whereas US particularly has been mismanaged. So, so it, 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 this has actually, uh, so far as I can see, has actually helped him. Uh, so it looks like presidency has sort of come up on top, you know, in terms of the war against COVID. So I guess with the upcoming US presidential elections, what would be your thoughts on how this would impact um, the relationship, especially with a Biden win, I guess you know, will tensions of uh, with, with uh, you know, between U.S. and China cool down? I actually feel that it is true that the polls has mentioned that uh, Biden will win, and I think it's quite likely. But I like to because this is an audience that's quite well informed. I like to give a slightly different perspective based on a few key points. Firstly, uh, I argue that there are secret Trump supporters. Uh, 
if you look at some recent survey, the questions show something like this. The poll asked the people, uh, who would you vote for? Uh, Biden ended up seven percentage point ahead. Uh, and recently ended up almost 10, 12 percentage point ahead. But the most interesting thing I found about this poll uh, two months back was that when the pollster turned the question around, they said, who do you think your neighbor will vote for? Huh. It turned out that instead of Biden winning by seven percentage point, Trump won by five percentage point. That means there's a 12 percentage point swing when the question is phrased in that way. And I let, let me try to uh, go deeper into the psychology. As you are aware, Trump is perceived as racist and you know quite some undesirable thing. So if I ask you, are you racist? Then maybe you'll say no. But then if I ask you, is your neighbor racist? Maybe you say yes. But then your neighbor's neighbor is you, no? So I think there could be a lot of whites who actually do not want to admit that they will vote for Trump. Secondly, just three, three days ago, there's a Gallup poll which asked a very specific question. Uh, you remember uh, Ronald Reagan when he ran against Jimmy Carter? He said, are you better off than four years ago? If you are better off than four years ago, you vote for Jimmy Carter. If you are not better off than four years ago, then you vote for me to change. You know what happened? 56% of the voters say they are actually better off than four years ago. Only 32% say they are worse off. And that's because before COVID, Trump did a good job on the economy. You know? so, so I think it is quite possible that, that Biden could win, but it might be the popular vote and then if you look at the Electoral College, some of the key states that are significant, I won't rule out uh, Trump making a surprise uh, victory. And I would argue that this might be part of the reason why Obama just came out. Huh? As you are aware, Obama came out yesterday to say that, you know, this, this Trump is a crazy uncle, you know, don't vote, don't vote for him and whatever. If Obama and the others are so confident, there's no need for him to actually as a former former president to come out in that way. So, but if, as you pointed out, if Biden wins, what will happen? Uh, this is an interesting case. Uh. When I was in China uh, last year, I met some of the senior people who are knowledgeable on, you know, uh, who are well, well linked with the senior leadership. Their first, this is uh, before COVID, uh, their first response is that the top leaders actually prefer Trump because Trump is a, a businessman, you know, he is non-ideological. So if there's a disagreement, he's not ideological. So if you give him a bit more, you know, the, you know, the, okay, the trade war, you know, okay, I, I buy more, more, more soybean, I, I give some concession to you, then it's okay. It's just a real estate project. Okay. Uh, 60, 40? Okay, you got 60, I got 40. You're not happy? Okay, I give you 65, 35. Uh, and actually, the trade war eventually settled because China gave some concession and there was an unwritten segment that is not published which have a hidden side agreement where China gave 
another 5%. And the condition is US would not publish it so that the Chinese uh, would not be embarrassed internationally and domestically. And that was the reason why the trade deal went through. You know, So after 60-40, China gave an extra 5%. But now the situation became a bit more complicated because Trump seems to be very, very uh, anti-China. Uh, so now they are a bit worried that if he, uh, now, now that he hammered China so much, uh, if he got another four years, he might hammer China even more. Uh, so that is one school of thought that get a bit more worried and thinks that if Biden wins, maybe Biden will be... Uh, of course, he will definitely be anti-China, but he might not see China as uh, near-term existential threat as seriously and, and, and think of all kinds of ways to strangle China. Uh, and he, he might actually uh, continue to have policy to contain China, uh, to undermine China, but he might also, based on the uh, policy or some announcement from the people who are close to him, he might actually try to work with China also, huh? like climate change, you know, like uh, trade, multilateral. So, so there is a sense that maybe if Biden comes up, uh, if the the competition might not be so brutal, and if you have an unpredictable person like Trump and he could be violently confrontational, that could be dangerous for China. And so Biden might be better because he's uh, a bit more level-headed. He's not likely to be crazy. And, and, and as a result, which the relationship might be tense, antagonistic, confrontational, but it might not explode. Oh yeah, I want to talk about the way China retaliates or reacts in terms of the U.S. Uh, trade policy. So mm -hmm. you know, on the tariff spot, you can see that they kind of mm -hmm. respond kind of proportionate, right? You know, perhaps mm -hmm. a bit a degree lower, so as to not intensify the tensions. That's right. But the response to the U.S. Um, tech sanctions on Huawei mm -hmm. or ByteDance so or now on uh, SMIC, um, silence, right? I think generally oh. there doesn't seem to be a reaction. Um, so can you talk about you know their thinking or they don't actually are able to respond in terms of the tax sanctions? There is a few, there are a few things involved. Huh? One is that China has noticed that even when Trump get very angry with China, he attacked China, he, he did not personally attack Xi Jinping. This is a very important thing. You know? He attacked China, he criticized all kinds of things. He never attacked Xi Jinping personally in his Twitter and everything. So this explains why you look at China, they hammer Pompeo, they hammer all kinds of people. They never attack or criticize, Xi, uh, criticize Trump personally. There was an internal directive down in China. You know? All the government-owned media never attacked Trump personally. So this is a very important thing because to the two of them, the personal uh, dimension is, is very important. Uh, so this is what I would say a saving grace that maybe the two of them might not uh, escalate it. The, for the trade war, as you mentioned, China's strategy was correct, uh, was, as what you say. You hit me, I try, not, I try to retaliate 
in some way proportionally or below proportionately so that it won't escalate. Uh, you look at the trade side, uh, the, you attack me on this, I give some, uh, usually it will de-escalate. When it comes to technology recently, they have been totally quiet. Uh, the reason, uh, as you correctly observe, the reason is this. They are taking uh, a wait and see and they are playing a long game. Because their assessment, which I think is not, not totally incorrect, is that Trump is desperate for re-election. So he has to grab anything that can hammer China because that could get some votes. And that, and he also allowed Pompeo and the other guy, uh, Navarro, all this to hammer China as much as possible so that he could gain some votes out of it. The assessment in China is that that is a lot of posturing before election. So their strategy is not to respond because you will be pouring kerosene onto fire and just keep quiet. Uh, wait till November 3rd. If Trump is not re-elected, then Trump is no longer an issue. If Trump is re-elected, then they will watch. And their assessment is this. You might disagree. Huh? Their assessment is that Trump will probably de-escalate. And this is, uh, an, again, uh, a, a different controversial assessment. There are two ways one can look at uh, how U.S. or Trump will behave if he wins rather than Biden wins. One is that he ram up and escalate even more. Two is that Trump is a businessman. He is actually broke. Uh, he needs money. His son needs money. Uh, he, he, his, uh, Jared Kushner needs money. Ivanka needs business. They might want not to cut off the total relationship with China uh, because it's still a useful market uh, for future businesses. So uh, Trump will push hard to get a grand bargain on trade, but he might not totally escalate until the relationship breaks down. That would be my assessment. Yeah. Okay, okay I'm going to take some questions from the audience. Again, feel free to um, you know go to the Q and A box and type in your questions. Uh, this one's anonymous. Uh, it goes back to your central committee. Is the age factor of the central committee so rigid and cannot be relaxed when you said C himself may stay until twenty thirty two? You know, so as to keep or uh, you know promote his supporters to positions of power. Is that age limit so rigid? Good, good question. The age limit is chi sang from the past, which is which means that you can stay on up to 67, then up to 60, 68, then you have to retire. Uh, it's an informal rule, uh, came back from the earlier power struggle between Chiang Zeming and the others. And this has been all along been adhered to. Uh, if Xi Jinping adhere, adhere to this, then he would have to stop that, step down in 2022. But because he changed a constitution on no age limit for president, so he can stay on. Uh, so incidentally, the Central Military Commission has no age limit. No? If he is the chairman of Central Military Commission, he can stay on. But there is an age limit for the uh, 
the state president, which is also President Xi's position. And so he has changed it for the president and vice president. So that means that he could stay on beyond 68 uh, as president. And Wang Qishan, who is the vice president, can also stay on. So, so this is the reason why a lot of people were very unhappy. When he changed this, uh, when I spoke to some of the people that I know in China, especially the, you know, the elites, the urban middle class, they, they feel that Teng has instituted this 10-year rule that uh, prevent somebody like Mao Zedong from dying in office and creating problems. So this is a good 10-year system that mimics the U.S. presidential system. And so it prevents people from, you know, uh, somebody from staying too long. And when he changed it, there were quite some uh, backlash, but maybe still not strong enough. But C's argument, my sense is this. Huh? If you go deep into his heart, what he say is this. And that is his justification. I came in in 2012. Uh, the Chinese system is different from the U.S. system. When you came in in 2012, you notice a lot of the other factions people are still around. Uh, 2012 to 2017, he wasn't totally in charge because unlike U.S., when you have an election, if I am Donald Trump, I came in with a new election, new mandate. I kick out everybody and put in my own people. The first day in, I'm in charge in the White House. In China, there's no election. You have to get consensus, uh, kind of understanding among all the various factions. And Jiang Zemin was so powerful that when Xi Jinping came in in 2012, Jiang Zemin was able to override him and put a lot of his own people there. So for 2012 to 2017, Xi Jinping was not in charge. This is equivalent to saying that when Trump entered the White House in 2016, Hillary Clinton is still hanging around. So, so Trump, uh, Xi Jinping, feel that he's only in charge in 2017. And if you ask him to start having a, a, a successor appointed in 2017, he become a lame duck. Mm. So this is the reason why he wants to stay longer, because he feel that he struggled five years to, to, to be in charge. And then he doesn't want to retire so early. And the second one is even more important. He thinks that he wants to take back Taiwan peacefully or not so peacefully within his uh, time. He wants to be remembered in China as the leaders who totally united the country. You know, from, from his perspective, Taiwan was taken away from the motherland by Japan. And the one and a half century of national humiliation would not be totally erased unless they take back Hong Kong from UK and Taiwan from Japan in a, in a uh, you know, metaphoric sense. Of course, one can disagree with, you know, you, the way you take back, you know, the, the people now have a different identity. Now they have a democratic government. That, as important uh, point and issue. But from his perspective, as a nationalist, as someone who looked back at 3,000 years of history, uh, reunification and erasing the, the 
opium wars humiliation and the Japanese invasion humiliation was critical. I'm wondering how is that possible, you know? I'm just wondering what kind of uh, means will the uh, presidency be willing to use? I mean, we did, I mean, we're noticing that Beijing has hardened the rhetoric towards Taiwan. Mm -hmm. They've removed references to peaceful reunification, for example, in some of the government or recent reports. Um, but what is the strategy? How would they achieve this via non-peaceful means? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a tough game. You, you have to ask them. Huh? <laughs> uh, the basic situation, the way I see it is this. Uh, they Originally, the plan was to use uh, economic business and other enticement. Uh, mm. In the early days, they actually tried to get the uh, Chinese people to help the Taiwanese farmer. You know, the Taiwanese farmer in the South are important supporter for DPP, pro-independence. Uh, so China has an internal plan, I won't say a secret one, but a, a quiet plan to buy more Taiwanese farm products to help the farmers in the South who are pro-DPP. That's why when I was at the World Bank in China in 2002 and 2005, you go to Carrefour, you go to some uh, supermarket, and there one whole section Taiwanese product, you know, a, a kind of patriotic thing that you should buy to help the Taiwanese. Right. Somehow it didn't work. Uh, so at one point it almost worked because Mainji was there. But now it looks like the, the, the uh, Taiwanese are brought up to see themselves different, uh, no longer part of the the overall Chinese uh, nation. So I think it will be very difficult for them uh, because they need to win the heart of these people eventually. Uh, so I think one problem that they might have to grapple with is actually to eventually uh, create a situation whereby the Taiwanese economy become, become eventually more dependent on China. And then through osmosis, they might gradually absorb it, while at the same time holding the stick, always brandishing in front of them uh, to prevent them from, from running away. And it's very interesting if you look at the latest MPC meeting, uh, the one in just, just recently, uh, the official document that was read out by uh, Li Keqiang say, very important, uh, for the first time omitted the word with peace. Uh, we were reunified with Taiwan. And then the word peaceful is taken out. This That's is the right. first time that this is taken out. And this is read by Li Keqiang in the MPC uh, and so this is the official statement because this document has to be approved by all the uh, Politburo Standing Committee. But the next day when Li Keqiang had the press conference, he added the reunification with peace in his reply to the reporter twice. So, so you can see that there might be a little bit of a slight different view. But more importantly, the next day, the official newspaper reported on 
Li Keqiang's point that it will be reunified, reunification with peace, they took out the with peace in the official newspaper. Hmm. Ah. Okay. <laughs> so, so I think that that might be a factional differences there also. Yeah. So I want to bring in Hong Kong here because there are some client questions here from Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Um, one question says, President Xi clearly wishes China to have a global superpower status. Why then do they continue to undermine their own reputation with the moves in Hong Kong? Maybe I'll broaden up the Hong Kong questions on, you know, what are your thoughts on the future of Hong Kong? Will China absorb and slowly turn Hong Kong into another Chinese province? Or do you think Hong Kong will maintain its distinct and separate reality? And surely President's presidency must have been surprised at the global backlash at the new national security law. Yeah, I think the I would argue that they underestimated the uh, Hong Kong position and how the international backlash will come in. Uh, so, so this is an important point that they underestimated, number one, that the Hong Kong young people and the large segment of the population uh, are more cautious about China because it's uh, uh, control a lot of information, it tightens a lot of rules and regulations, it has, uh, you know, the, the information control, you know, no term limit. So, so they underestimated that after all these years of linkages with the West and some of the value system, uh, these people might be ethnically Chinese, but they might actually uh, feel differently and react differently. But they have been quite careful on this. Firstly, of course, they uh, they didn't do what the, some of the people in the rest of the world expect, do a Tiananmen. Uh, but you notice despite all the things and the national uh, security law, they maintain three things, which I think is important and it might uh, actually stabilize the situation. And Hong Kong might actually uh, improve in this condition. These are three things. One, internet firewall. You can still have your Facebook, Google, and everything in China, as in Hong Kong, you know. The internet firewall was never extended to Hong Kong. That is a very important thing. Uh, That means they didn't tinker around with all this uh, uh, internet freedom of info. Secondly, the rule of law. Uh, Now, you might say, hey, they, they, they have changed, but... I will argue that China have two components to the rule of law. For the rule of law, for business and finance, you know, you have a contract, you come and invest, your property is well protected, uh, and your contract is enforceable, your, uh, you know, the legal arbitration system is there. This is what I call rule of law for business and finance. They never touch it. But rule of law in the political dimension, all your you know, political activities, opposition, uh, demonstration, undermining the central government, that part is taken out. Uh, so, so that is a separation. So what they are saying is that they will make sure that JP Morgan, uh, 
this uh, Goldman Sachs and you know all the other uh, law firms in in uh, Hong Kong are happy because the rule of law in business and finance is still there. But the one that want to overthrow them, uh, they will catch you. Mm -hmm. Then the third one is Hong Kong dollar international convertibility. They never tinker around the Hong Kong international. So if you take these three, and if you are Goldman Sachs, nothing has changed except that now Joshua Huang Wong is not running around. No? You go to your office, you continue to, to have all the internet. Uh, your contract is enforceable, you still make money, and then your Hong Kong dollar is there. The only difference, of course, is that you might, uh, for Hong Kong people, is that you might not be able to start an opposition party, you might not be able to publish a, a book that says Xi Jinping is an idiot, you know. Uh, but, so, Chen I mean, there's a very clear push, you know, from the president to open up the financial sector in Shenzhen. Right. It's already a tech hub. It's the headquarters mm -hmm. for Huawei and Tencent. Good, good point. Fact, the GDP has already surpassed Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. It's going to be the test bid for the digital yuan. I mean, surely Shenzhen seems to be the emerging financial hub for China. Mm -hmm. Won't that um, overtake, overshadow Hong Kong? Yeah, this is, I would say, an uh, important contingency plan. China... First priority is to have Hong Kong absorbed peacefully without destroying Hong Kong's business financial role. That is the first priority and first uh, choice. So this is what the three points that I mentioned. But in the event that things got mismanaged, there are all kinds of problems, Hong Kong people still demonstrate and, and things uh, go wrong. The next stage is that I don't need you. Mm. I have Shenzhen to take over whatever you can do. I see. Ah. So, so I have a two-stage strategy. I want you to come back peacefully and continue to prosper, make money, and make your contribution. But if you don't accept the conditions I give you, I have an alternative and you can be totally marginalized. Hmm. So if we accept this condition, and then you become part of the bigger Bay Area, and all your youngsters don't go around hammering people and demonstrating. You get jobs in a revitalized Hong Kong. You can even get jobs within the greater Bay Area. Then everybody can prosper. The only difference is that you don't publish article and send out social media things that say Xi Jinping is a dictator or idiot. Okay, I've got quick three questions here from clients about uh, about the court. You know, how uh, is China uh, reacting to growing resist regional resistance as amplified by strengthening court? Will court derail China's rejuvenation? Um, there's also a similar question about uh, you know Australia, UK, Europe showing signs that they want to contain China's influence, so it's not just America. Um, again, yeah, so, so more questions on this quad. So uh, any, any views on that? This is no insult to any countries. Huh? Mm -hmm. If you don't have U.S., containment of China cannot work. Australia, U.K., India, Japan are not powerful enough, individually or collectively, to contain China. Huh? So 
US coming in and rallying the other is critical. So that's the reason why I think the US-China relationship is central. If US, for whatever reason, under Biden or Trump, feel that it's not worthwhile or too costly to uh, build an Asian NATO to contain China, then there's nothing that can be done. Because Japan, India, Australia are too weak and too dependent on China to come up with this strong uh, arrangement. So I think I would put all the analysis on what is who takes over from US, what is their long-term strategy about containing China, and Quad will become very powerful if US is willing to do the heavy lifting and then the others come in. The same way as NATO was very important in Europe in confronting Russia. Now, the, Euro the other Europeans, of course, come in, Germany, France, and all the other, but, but they, are, they are not critical. No? Without US, NATO would not be there in the... Uh, this is like a tank. No? How to build a tank? You build a tank because you are a big, powerful central pillar. Then this Australia and all the others, they are small pillar around the rim, no? Uh, the, if the big, big pillar come down, all the small pillars are useless, no? Uh, so, okay. So, okay. so that is the way I see the structure, yeah. So I want to zoom in a bit about the, the shift in the economic strategy, you know, because mm -hmm. recently we've heard about this dual circulation, which oh, I presume right. represents a more domestic-centric or creating a more domestic led economy. But just five years ago, you know, not to re not that far, in 2015, uh, there's about all this uh, going out strategy, right, in the areas of mm. railroads and, you know, electronics and tech, of which uh, China, and a lot of this was driven by the China SOEs. And of course, mm. Belt and Road was also a key mm. part of that strategy, which we're getting some client mm. questions as well. So do you think the emphasis has shifted? Is China becoming a bit more inward looking? Uh, because the rest of the world is building a wall now to China investments and exports? Or is this just, uh, you know, now, so what? What is is that? Is that uh, is that is that China's ambitions to go out? Uh, very very good question. Huh? Uh, in the earlier period, when you know globalization was still uh, an important trend, they have this one back one road thing, which try to uh, export their capital, ex uh, create more influence, build infrastructure, export their expertise. And effectively, it's an economic, geopolitical, and diplomatic move uh, to expand their uh, influence and power across Central Asia to Europe, uh, going down to Southeast Asia, to East Africa. That is still on, except that I think maybe the resources uh, is much less. So they will have to trim down uh, in terms of the scale the extensiveness and everything. Uh, so that's one part. The other part is the double circulation point that you mentioned, which is a very important move. They have, it's partly due to retreat of globalization, uh, the US antagonism. And so they feel that if I, I have the economy 
too big a share dependent on external demand, I could be in trouble because I have no control. So to take a simple analogy, uh, China from Xi Jinping's conception is like a horse-drawn carriage. Uh, in the 1980s and 90s when they started up, maybe seven horses are foreign horses. Only three horses are domestic. So if U.S. slow down, U.S. hammer them, they are dead. Uh, over the years, their domestic side become larger and larger. And I would argue that maybe you have a situation where you got maybe even seven to 7.5 horses are domestic. Two to 2.5 horses are international. But these two to 2.5 horses international are still very powerful stallion. Especially those that are linked with technology. Mm. So their double circulation means that maybe they want to replace one more horse with a domestic horse. I see. And then they still will have one or one and a half horses linked with outside because they need that linkage. But they are saying that the dependence is more vulnerable. I give you a very simple uh, analogy. When I was in China, I worked on the 11 fire plan with the Prime Minister Department because they trusted the World Bank. Uh, the World Bank was considered quite objective, and I was chief economist. So they get a bunch of us to give an alternative suggestion to the prime minister's office on the 11 fire plan that's unbiased. Uh, so in the process, I discovered that, uh, you know, the Chinese agriculture policy is like this. They have a food security uh, policy. Mm -hmm. They have to be 95% self-sufficient in rice and wheat. Because these are the primary product, you know. No matter how little land they have, no matter how expensive it is, they will never give up 95% self-sufficient rice and import from Australia or Thailand from the US. Hmm. That is called primary food security. Then there is a secondary food security, which is soybean. Uh, soybean is also used as food, but soybean is largely used to squeeze out for oil, but also to use to fatten the chicken and the pig. And it's counted as secondary food security. And so they allow the soybean to be 80% dependent on US and Brazil. Only 20% domestic self-sufficient. The argument is that if there's a war, I have 95% of my rice. I don't have this 80% of soybean, but never mind. I don't eat pork and I don't <laughs> eat chicken. Uh, it's, you, you see it's, what it's, I mean? It's, tech, uh, it's techno being recognized as part of uh, that. So, so the double circulation is the 95 self-sufficient on rice. Uh, and at the moment, they cannot be self-sufficient on tech because they are not there yet. Uh, so that's why you see a lot of uh, investment uh, focus on tech, and eventually it is quite likely that they will have this kind of pyramid structure, which I think might happen in U.S. At the bottom, I don't mind dependent on U.S. for, you know, 
cars or various kind of product. But as it reached the apex, the tech that are sensitive, uh, that might be linked with the military, uh, that are very strategic, I will want to do it on my own, the way I do it with rice. So you are likely to see uh, continue globalization and coupling linkages at the lower middle part of the pyramid. But the higher you go on the upper end of the pyramid, where the strategic dimension of technology is stronger and the link with military and other things is stronger, you will see total decoupling. Okay, I guess we've got many, many questions, but I just, uh, I'll take this question that just goes back to your factionalism. With President Xi seemingly firmly in control, is there anyone in the Politburo whose color is rising and is a clear alternative or successor to him? You know, or is Xi determined not to have anyone even remotely being in that position? In China, the smartest people are the ones that are not being perceived as a threat. <laughs> Xi Jinping was ambitious, but he was never perceived to be a threat by Jiang Zemin because he was lying low, he was no, having no faction. And so a cunning fox like Jiang Zemin never thought that one day this guy can be so uh, powerful and undermine him. Another way of saying is that the smart people uh, try to climb up, but the really, really smart people know how to make people to feel that they are stupid. Huh? <laughs> so if there is one guy who is really smart who are trying to climb up now, mm. he is hiding somewhere. Huh? He is not showing anything. I see. So you're not willing to put a name, eh? <laughs> huh? So, so that will be the case. But I think the most likely scenario is this. C will stay on for another 10 years, by which time he is a bit older and he also will be under pressure for uh, succession. Among his people that he trusts and who thinks that he thinks that he, they can you know, continue on his legacy, uh, he might groom some of them. Hmm. And it might be quite... Uh, if it is managed well, it could be potentially quite smooth. If C is, say, 85, okay, this guy is 60. It's quite a, a, a stable transition. He's already 85. Uh, this guy come up 60, understudy him, uh, bow every day. And, <laughs> and, and after three, four more years, the guy gradually take over and the transition will be smooth. He doesn't want someone who is only five, 10 years more junior than him. I see. So somebody who is 20, 25, or even 30 years younger than him might be able to take over smoothly. Okay, I guess we're running out of time. Um, just one or two more questions. Um, one, I just want to highlight, you know, the economist about, I think, two, three weeks ago, Highlighted mm -hmm. China's new economic model, you know, call mm -hmm. it Xenomics. So Xenomics is some kind of new form of state capitalism. Mm -hmm. I presume it's some kind of a striking a balance between, you know, 50-60% of the state economy mm -hmm. in energy and finance, and then the rest of very energetic private sector, you know, particularly in mm -hmm. tech. So mm -hmm. I'm just wondering, is there a do you see an inherent contradiction here between bringing in the state 
and freeing up the market. And of course, the more recently, there's criticisms that you know, party committee members have been appointed, you know, to the yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to the boards of tech firms and so yeah, on. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. So, right. so, so, what are your views on that? You know, will it ultimately work? Yeah, this is a very good question. Huh? Uh, you see, most of us who learn neoclassical economics tend to see the private sector and the state as kind of a dichotomized. And partly because we learn it mostly in the U.S. tradition and the U.S. model. If you look at continental Europe, say Germany, the dichotomy between state and private sector is not as stark as you think, no? Now they have this social market economy. But because U.S. is so dominant that this tends to become the wisdom and Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher say the state and uh, is the problem. What China, actually, before China, if you look carefully at Japan, uh, you carefully look at Korea, Taiwan, Singapore, the state play quite important role for a significant uh, period. And I would predict this, uh, that the Chinese experience uh, has a lot of inefficiency and problem, but it also shows one strength. That is that in a tech situation, in a dynamic uh, development, the state has some role to play to reduce uncertainty and invest in uh, major R&D. In fact, I would argue that U.S. has done this, no? except that they, they camouflaged it and didn't try to admit it. You look at the internet and everything, it all came from Silicon Valley, it all came from defense uh, spending. Mm -hmm. it, 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 it is the, the U.S. version of Huawei, uh, except that mm -hmm. it's done in a different way. And you notice, interestingly, because of this reflection and the way China seems to be able to move a bit better ahead through this model uh, in AI and in uh, electric vehicle, there is a group in advising Biden now arguing for some form of industrial policy in the US. In order to compete with China, you might resurrect some form of industrial policy. It should not be such a dirty name. It has proven to be successful in Silicon Valley in the early days. And maybe that's the way U.S. should go in uh, taking the challenge from China, rather than Trump hammering and bending Huawei, bending, you know, TikTok, bending. If you do hammering and bending, you have no counter policy, you know. Mm. Whereas if I come up with an industrial policy, well-planned, uh, I garner resources and everything, then I'm giving a run for your money. So, so I think some of the people, if you carefully read carefully, some of the people under Biden are more thoughtful people. They, I would not be too surprised if some of this become uh, an important policy if Biden wins. You know? That would be interesting. So the US ah. becomes a bit more... Ah. The, the state, so, state gets involved a bit more involved. Incidentally, I, I don't know whether you are aware. The industrial policy and all this is called uh, China has this manufacturing 2025, right? Yeah. Uh, then they have all this industrial upgrading and eventually evolve into this AI uh, 
electric vehicle and everything. You know where they get the idea from? It's from Germany, you know. Germany has this industrial plan 4.0 uh, that was published. In, you, you go back and check, uh, 2012 or 2013. Then China copied it. I see. And they call it in 2015. And then they call it manufacturing 2025. So that is 10 years. You go back and check. The inspiration was Germany. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, I think we only have time for one last question, and I want to bring it home. You know, so in terms of the U.S.-China rivalry, you know, what does it mean for ASEAN? Is ASEAN a beneficiary from this, or will ASEAN be caught eventually? You know, in this uh, in this skirmish, and also what it means for Singapore. You know, well, how how should Singapore position itself? I would see the next 10, 20 years as. Uh, a period of great opportunity and also potential great crisis for ASEAN. Great opportunity in the sense that we are beginning to see some, you know, the investment coming in, the uh, diversion of the uh, value-added chain and relocations of companies. If U.S. doesn't quite trust China, a lot of Japanese company, Korean company, Taiwanese company, even Chinese company uh, will move to Southeast Asia. Uh, so ASEAN will benefit from it. And that is a big part. On the other hand, if you look back at the experience of the previous trade war, uh, Cold War, when the ideological confrontation was very strong, the fight was very big between US and former Soviet Union and China. Uh, U.S. tried to contain communism from China. What happened? A lot of the Asian countries become better ground, uh, ideological better ground. No? So Korea is one, uh, North Korea, South Korea. Then the Vietnam War is mm. part of the Cold War. No? Right. Laos, Cambodia, they got set back enormously. And if you look at 1960s, mid-60s, Sukarno uh, was replaced by Suharto. Enormous bloodshed. Those were part of the Cold War. No? Mm -hmm. And the lucky countries during the Cold War were Thailand, Malaysia, Singapore. And that's why we prosper. Whereas the Vietnamese and uh, uh, Cambodia and Laos were having so many bombs and, and, and mines. Right, right, right. Now, in the next Cold War, in the next 20 years, depending on luck, depending on who is more nimble, who will be the Vietnam where the uh, proxy war is being fought? Who will be the uh, Thailand that benefited from this proxy war? during the Vietnam War. A lot depends on luck, skill of the leaderships and everything. So I would see, you know, Charles Dickens say, this is the uh, spring of hope. This is the winter of despair. Huh? <laughs> this is the uh, best of time. This is the worst of time. I think the next 10, 20 years, it might apply to ASEAN. Thank you, Professor Kong Yang. I think we're very refreshing and a different view coming especially from the channel lens.